Welcome back to another episode of Epic Earth. Epic Earth is a podcast for those curious about the STEM fields and the awesome, quirky, and fun experiences and research that is taking place right now. This is episode number 13, The Drone Saga. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take a journey around this epic Earth. Power elements distributed in a planetary body. What are our hopes? What are our dreams? What do we want to accomplish? And how do we accomplish it? We can have all the science in the world, but if it's not translated, how is that helpful? Welcome to another episode of Epic Earth. I'm Ashley Bosa, and with me I have my co-host, Brian Rosenblatt. Hey there, everyone. And today we have a very special guest who Brian and I have both worked very closely with. Um, We're excited to have him on the show, so welcome to Jerry Mock. Hi, Jerry. Hi. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Thanks for coming on. Um, so Jerry is a, currently a geophysics master's student here at Boise State University. Um, he specifically works on my project uh, on the Lajars on Vulcan de Fuego in Guatemala. And I'm very fortunate to have him as a, a field partner and as a collaborator. He does some awesome work, which he's going to hopefully tell us about in a little bit. Um, But prior to this, uh, Jerry got his Associates of Science and Geology from uh, the College of Western Idaho. And then he transitioned over to BSU to get his Bachelor of Science from Boise State University. So he's a alum already of this great university. And now, of course, he's he's doing his uh, master's here as well. And Jerry, um, you're an interesting case like... uh, myself and some other students here at Boise State because you are a non-traditional student. So can you just explain a little bit about what a non-traditional student is? Well, uh, a non-traditional student is someone that uh, doesn't drop right into college after high school. So goes out and does things in the world for a while and then comes back to college to to enrich their life, get a degree. That's, that's, That's where I'm at. That's great. And so it uh, sounds like maybe you had a lot of experience prior to coming back and getting a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I tried out, I tried out a lot of different hats uh, in, in the 10 years between graduating uh, high school and, and getting back into, into the college. Um, I was a mechanic for a while. Uh, I actually went to a vocational school the last two years of my high school and got a uh, uh, certificate of some sort in uh, automotive technologies. So I got uh, a little bit of higher learning right off the bat, but it was more of a trade school kind of situation. So I went, I went into automotive technologies for a while, and then I was a metal fabricator for a while. Um, I was a well driller for a while, did water well drilling, which I, my, my family back in Ohio does water well drilling. So I had some experience there too, but yeah, I've, I've done a lot of stuff. A lot of different hats. That's great. Um, do you feel like having that experience prior to coming back to college and getting a degree really helped with um, college or do you feel like it was a setback or are there aspects of it that you can apply to to your experience in college? Well, certainly the the, the experiences that I got out in the quote unquote real world uh, are definitely helpful and, and an understanding 
what I need to do in college. And also uh, treating college like a job, like a real job, really helps with staying on top of assignments and getting things done and really uh, succeeding where, where others may not, given the yeah. same situation, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and not to say that that students coming right out of high school into college don't apply the same skills. Um, you know, there are several students who might have some skills from from growing up, or or you know, they might have that mentality to sort of go into it and view it as you know a, vo a vocation or a job that they're they're undertaking. Um, but yeah, I, I think you make a good point that sometimes going out into the real world and experience, experiencing stuff outside of the academia really can drive some of the more important skills to help you get through through college. Yeah. Um, and so you also do um, a lot of lab work with us, um, with our team. So you've been working in uh, the geophysics lab for, for a while now. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? and um, maybe some of the, the cool things that you've created in the lab? For sure. So when I started working in, in the lab, uh, it was building the InfraBSU infrasound sensors. So we were at that point, we were developing the containment unit for all the electronics and we decided to go with uh, 3D printing uh, for, for all of that and that Jeff went ahead and, and did all of the schematic work for the design of the 3D print. And then uh, we collaborated with the uh, uh, Maker Lab and the, uh, in the library and started doing, um, started doing the actual 3D printing. And that took a lot of uh, trial and error because I'd, I'd never 3D printed anything before. Yeah. So learning... The, the learning curve was a little bit steep, but we, we got there. Eventually we, we got to uh, a really good product that did everything that we wanted it to do. It took, it took some time though, a lot of, lot of trial and error in that, in that process. And then uh, also building all the cables and the associated electronics, doing a lot of soldering and the stuff like that. And I, I knew how to do all that stuff from my time in industry doing doing similar things like being an auto mechanic like you have to learn how to how to do some of those some of those more technical things so it, yeah it's it's really helped me out and yeah that's awesome and also can i just say like you're such a problem solver i think that's a huge skill that you bring not only into the lab but also into the field so if if our stuff breaks you're kind of there already thinking of the next steps on what we need to do in order to fix it. And um, whatever that requires, either duct tape or um, a drill press, you know, you, you've got it in your mind. So can I just say that that is awesome. And, <laughs> awesome. Um, and then you also um, have a bit of an invention that you are currently developing and working on. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, um, let's see, it's been, two years now, something like that. I was, I was sitting in a uh, geophysics class and we had a guest speaker coming into lecture because our instructor was in Italy, I think, in Stromboli. Um, and uh, he, was, he was talking about um, snow science at HP Marshall. He was talking about snow science and the equipment that he was using and the shortfalls of that equipment. And one of the, one of the pieces of equipment he was talking about was 
the um, snow depth probe that they were using and how uh, it was there was limitations to it because it was only a meter and a half long and sometimes the snow was deeper than that and you just had to manually take measurements so i got to thinking while he was still talking <laughs> that uh, you could probably probably build something better mm -hmm. so i uh after class i uh i approached him and he said if if you really think you can do it uh i'll get you some funding so that was that was the uh the birth of the idea for the uh snow depth probe that i'm developing and it's it, like lasers and gps and uh i think this summer uh, i'm going to have something that's actually marketable because the last few designs have been kind of clunky and big because mm -hmm. that's that's how technology works. It starts large and gets small. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think moving forward, we're going to have something that we can really we really hang our hat out and be be proud of. And it'll be used for data collection in the NASA SnowX project, which that's, is pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's sweet. That must feel really good to have something that you can call your own and say, I've built this from scratch. And it was just based off of this idea that popped into my head as this person was at, you know, saying all the difficulties of, of the equipment. I mean, I think that um, we have a lot of great people here um, at BSU, including you, Jerry, who have these ideas in mind because the commercial equipment that is used in fieldwork is usually really expensive. It, like you said, it can be really clunky. It can be really heavy. It's especially for the snow um, expeditions. They carry a lot of heavy equipment back into the field with them uh, and it's expensive. Um, you're talking like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars just for like one small thing that you're carrying back into the field with you. Yeah, and, the, the, the probe that they're using now is uh, they're $10,000 a piece and they're I think the last time that they got a real serious update was in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's been a while <laughs> since, since they've been updated and they're like, there's, there's obvious problems with them, including being heavy. Yeah. Right. So, and like when you're backpacking into a, you know, wilderness, that's not something you really want to be lugging around with you. Um, mm -hmm. How much does it cost you to make the one you're designing? Oh yeah, that's a good question. So the one that I'm designing uh, is going to cost at the end of everything, including labor, um, less than half that. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's definitely a cheaper option and it's going to be lighter and easier and you'll be able to extend it to however long you need it, several, several meters instead of just one and a half. And it, it'll be adjustable. So you won't be lugging around three meters worth of pole when you only need a meter. Yeah. You have a name for it? Uh, the the working title is uh, the JCM Snow Probe. Cool. So clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So clever. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, we're we're honored to have you on our team, Jerry. And honestly, it's so awesome that you you have this invention that is really coming to life for you right now. So keep up the good work with that. Um, <laughs> I like that you sort of to like wrap up your sort of introduction, you kind of um, quoted this William Shakespeare 
um, quote that says you're a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. So that's yeah. very true. I feel yeah. like some of us are in that. In that <laughs> yeah. <boat. laughs> yeah. That's, that's something I definitely like to live by. Like it's, there's, there's no reason to limit yourself when you're, when you're learning new skills. Yeah. Cause they are applicable everywhere. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of our group lives by sort of that notion and that like a lot of us are so excited to learn so many different things and it's difficult at times. Like, you know, you have some limitations and some of the, the things that you're trying to learn, but I think uh, we're fortunate to have a team full of people who are just, you know, enthusiastic enough to sort of apply themselves in a lot of different areas, which is awesome. Learning with gusto. <laughs> exactly. And now, what makes you, you? So, Jerry, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are um, as a person? What makes you, you? Well, um, First and foremost, um, homo sapien sapien. Um, <laughs> after that, uh, geophysicist slash volcanologist slash geomorphologist. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, uh, all around kind of a little bit outdoorsy, a little bit indoorsy. I like to, I like, I just started skiing this season, nice. which is, which is super exciting. Uh, that's, um, yeah, like something that I've kind of always wanted to do, but it was always just a little bit out of out of my reach for whatever reason, mm-hmm. like scheduling or money or whatever. But but this season I finally got out there and got myself a, a Twilight Pass at Buggy Space and and I'm actually getting pretty good at it. Well, the last time I went out, I didn't even fall. The first time I went out, that's all I did. Yeah. <laughs> I got really, really, really good at falling down on my and, first time out and getting back up probably yeah and get, getting back up yeah that like being kind of crappy at something is the first step to being kind of good at something so mm-hmm. this is how it goes <laughs> but uh but yeah so uh skiing that's a new thing uh i'm a motorcycle enthusiast um i've done several fairly long trips to uh coastal california just just north of uh just north of san francisco nice. um i've traveled a- all around idaho uh mm-hmm. over to the oregon coast a couple times uh up into washington um yeah it's that, that's I, I really really enjoy being out on a motorcycle i put uh let's see fifteen thousand miles on two wheels wow which is which is quite a bit that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's considering that you can only be on two wheels for what four months here. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> and in Idaho, maybe even less. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great though. I, I bet um driving a motorcycle through Idaho is probably one of it's gotta be so much fun to do that because the roads are so narrow and windy. And on a motorcycle, that's just like the best type of of roadway <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh the let's see there's a highway in the Owyhees, the 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 southern highway that goes basically right next to um the bruno dunes mm-hmm. 
it's a really nice road and it's there's basically no cars on it it's super windy it's just beautiful terrain all the way through like that's it's a it's a dream to to just get into the into that flow state on on a motorcycle and on the those tight winds yeah that's awesome i've never really ridden a motorcycle but i can imagine that those areas can be just give you a whole different perspective of traveling down those roads motorcycle. Mm-hmm. super cool um so jerry you told us that you have a pretty um big background in sort of trade school um skills and then uh and then you you went in to get your associates and so what got you interested in sort of geology and geophysics what what sort of drew you into that that field of study well so the the geoscience I, I talked to my brother a lot about this before before starting school. Like if I was ever going to go back, I would do something with geology because um, I have some experience because my um, I grew up uh, helping out on the job site with my dad. Mm-hmm. He's a, a water well driller back in Ohio. So I've always been kind of interested in like what's going on down below because because of that, like punching holes through different strata as you as you go down, and it, like seeing how it changes, and the occasional uh, fossil mm-hmm. popping out in the in in the mud, like that was that was really wild when I was a kid. Yeah, like I think that would still be really wild now. <laughs> <laughs> Just like oh, there's a trilobite. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and then so the like I've always been kind of. Like, I want to know how stuff works. And like, we live on a planet and I really want to know how that works. <laughs> like... Yeah, no, I think uh, that's great. I think, you know, everyone has a certain level of curiosity that they bring into um, this field. And um, yeah, I think so much it's great that you have this sort of like drive and this sort of direction and goal that you have that might be so broad and so you know ambiguous like oh I just want to know how the planet works (laughs) um but I think that that's that's really great and what a cool sort of way to get yourself into something almost similar but like very completely different from what you were doing before so Mm -hmm. wildly different Yeah. yeah yeah all of uh all of that experience that I was talking about um, about two weeks into Geo 101, uh, that yeah, I had, I had, all of that experience was was no longer <laughs> no longer relevant. So, and, but but I'm here now, so so it all counts. Oh, you're doing amazing. <laughs> so you you obviously found your your niche in the world and something that you enjoy doing. So that's awesome. Um, so I'm really excited to ask you this next question because uh, I think you're you're doing some amazing stuff. So what sort of research are you working on at the moment for your grad program? Well, right now uh, I'm working on the Lahar project, as you as you said in the intro. Um, so I'm doing drone photogrammetry um, with structure for motion to develop tools to see how the Lahar channel is changing over the course of a um, rainy season. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting, getting, taking a bunch, bunch of pictures with a drone 
dumping those into uh, some software that stitches all those pictures together and creates uh, a 3D model that I can use to see how things change over time. That's the that's the long and short of it. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And it's so great because you just primarily use drones. You don't really use any other sort of um, equipment. So yeah. Uh, yeah, there's there's very little um, other stuff. I think I think the next project we're going to use some survey equipment, but for this one, yeah, it was just strictly uh, drone photogrammetry, nothing nothing else really. And sort of, um, can you just explain a little bit about um, how you got onto that project and and why drones? Why why are you so interested in using the drones themselves? Well, I. I, I really, I really dislike drones. <laughs> that's yeah. And yeah, that's I, yeah, totally. Yeah, just I just I really really dislike drones. So uh, when it came down to it, I just wanted an excuse to use drones. And um, I'd done some structure for motion stuff and uh, uh, a drone class that I took, and I thought it was really cool. And so when we got down to Guatemala I was like hey we could we could do some drone stuff and like over time figure out how this stuff is how this stuff is changing and Jeff really really liked that idea mm -hmm. and that's that's basically how I got on got made myself a part of that project yes uh, <laughs> Jerry Jerry unfortunately or maybe fortunately made himself very relevant the first time we went to Guatemala and so uh Jeff and I were talking afterwards and we were like you know what Jerry's a great addition to this project and he's gonna do drone stuff for us which is amazing <laughs> so. yeah, that's it's what I do I dig myself in like a tick yeah <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Not quite as annoying as a tick. Right. Yeah. 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 Like a like a friendly, likable tick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pain free. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> um, Jerry, can you just explain uh, what is the best or most fun thing that you do with your research? What do you like the most about it? Well, flying the drones obviously is awesome. Like developing the the flight paths and figuring out how you're gonna do all that stuff all the planning that goes into it is a lot of fun flying the drones is definitely a peak because that's like it's so cool to see things from that perspective because you're you're watching the screen as just as the drone is collecting all the data so like you get to see everything all of the data that you're going to be working with for the next however long you get to see it being collected in real time yeah and that that is fascinating to me and from from a, a drone's eye view you see the the world through a completely different lens like yeah. everything everything is a little bit different from 100 meters up right yeah. um, after that it's it's the processing i really I, I enjoy getting into the nitty gritty of developing that data into a product that's visually appealing. Like everything uh, from from stitching it together and in the initial software to make the the 3D models to um, the making the figures after that to show the 
how how it's changed over time like every part of that is is really fun but flying the drones is definitely the the highest peak on that (laughs) yeah that's uh that's for sure um and you've got a few different drones that you use out in the field um, and possibly a new one that we'll be using this summer. Um, can you just tell us like very briefly about some of those drones that you're using? So we started out planning on uh, using the, what was it? The DJI um, Air 2 drone uh, for, for the initial surveys, the first time we went down there, because that's what we had. That's, that's what we had available. So we did all of the initial surveys with, with that drone. And then we ended up leaving that one with our uh, collaborator in Guatemala, Armando. Mm-hmm. And then the next time we went down, we were going to use the uh, DJI uh, Pro, Pro 2. Yeah, the Mavic Pro 2. And we got that one down there. And our first, first time out in the field with that one, that had a uh, had an issue with the with some of the onboard software, so it never got off the ground. <laughs> but luckily, the Air Two Armando still had it, and he still had all of the flight programs, so we were able to to use that one still. So all of my data that I'm using now is from that one little drone, and it did it just did a great job. Yeah, I <laughs> can't say enough good about it. Um, I think. The next time we go down, we're probably going to use the the pro. I'm going to take two of them this time because because two is one and one is none. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take take two of them this time. Uh, I was considering using um, a larger drone, but it seems like to get the resolution that I, that we're looking for, I won't have to do that. So even even though big drones are cool. Yeah. And, at some point it's overkill and it's difficult to get into the country so (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. going through tsa is always fun with the drones Mm -hmm. anyway but so i know you're a very creative person and you tend to give the drones names yeah Um, you think (laughs) you could tell us a few of the drone namer (laughs) yeah i think the audience would like to hear the names of some of these drones (laughs) well when uh when jeff initially got the uh, the Mavic Minis, uh, he he gave he passed them off to me. He's like, "Here, give these give these drones some names." And I'm sure he was expecting like Alpha, Beta, <laughs> some, yeah. something something like that. But uh, I decided to go a, a step further uh, because I'm incapable of not doing that. <laughs> um, and I named them uh, Ravenclaw um x-wing and vincent van drone (laughs) vincent van drone is definitely my favorite of the three yeah (laughs) uh this this newest set uh i decided that uh, we should name them after uh dragonfly species Mm. so uh we've got uh meadowhawk and flame skimmer Mm. Which are the, the the coolest dragonfly. There's so many dragonfly names, by the way. There's thousands and thousands of dragonfly names to pick from. And those those were the coolest ones that I found. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh dragonflies are really cool species, by the way. Like yeah. they're just 
they've lived for so long and they've been <laughs> like so adaptable to so many different environments. So um, that's a bit of a tangent, but yeah, those are, that's, that's great that you are so clever with your names, Jerry. And then uh, the Air 2, didn't we name it like Air 2 Brute or something? Yes, like Air 2 Brute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jerry and I often probably are on a lot of lack of sleep. So <laughs> in the lab, sometimes we just think out loud and maybe come mm-hmm. up with some random stuff. But yeah. Um, in the rich, Jerry, um, do you have any fun stories from the field? Oh, um, fun stories from the field. There, that's there's a lot to choose from. Uh, which type of fun? Because that's that's a real <laughs> like type one fun where it's fun at the time, or type two fun where it's like fun later. Um, why do you have examples of like maybe one of both? So working on those stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's see, hiking up. Uh, hiking up Fuego uh, to Candelaria, like have like you know where it is, but like what is it two or three kilometers, but like at a pretty steep grade. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that was that was uh, definitely type two fun. Definitely type two yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, like because it it really sucked at the time, and it was awful, <laughs> sweaty and hot. Yeah, uh, when you got up to where the where the foliage kind of separated out and you could see the broad open uh old caldera and all of the greenery in it and the the volcano right there uh popping off every 20 minutes or so with uh small eruptions like that was that was a really really amazing sight mm-hmm. that that was and then I flew a drone there. <laughs> we almost killed the drone there, but we flew yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I, I ran it into a tree a little bit, but it recovered. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was, that was glorious. That was mm-hmm. definitely, definitely fun. But getting there sucked. <laughs> was it worse than Viarica? Um, it was it was differently bad hmm. because when I hiked up Viarica, I had a uh, um, a knee injury. Hmm. Oh yeah. The, the the day before, I was jumping, <laughs> carrying a drone. I <laughs> was jumping across a small stream, and you had to jump to the to, to a rock in the middle, and then from that rock to the other the other bank. So I'm holding I'm holding a drone in one hand and the controller with someone else's phone attached to it in the other hand. And I jumped to the middle rock and that's fine. I made it perfect. And I jumped from that middle rock to the other bank. And as my foot lands, it slips on some sand on a rock and I lose my balance. And I like topple forward. I think I take three steps. And then as I'm going down right underneath my kneecap, there's, there's there's that tendon, it's called the meniscus. Mm-hmm. And it hit right on the top of a sharp rock. Oh my god! Just, <laughs> just smacked it, just just enough to really mess up <laughs> the rest of the trip. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I uh, I saved the drone. Uh, the phone went flying. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it it survived with with a dent. 
but but the important part is I saved the drill. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that was Scott's phone too. It was it? Scott's phone. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely Scott's phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I hiked another um, six miles that day, and then uh, the next day with with swollen knee uh hiked up hiked up via Rica for what was it, like four four something hours yeah yeah more like I think mine was like five and a half hours by the time yeah yeah so so something like five hours worth of hiking up via mm-hmm. Rica. like every time we would take a stop I would I would just like stick my knee in the snow <laughs> just to cool it off take some of the swelling out yeah, I was yeah. I was wrecked by the time we got to the top, but it was definitely worth it. Yeah. Um, and so climbing up Fuego then was a little bit different than that. Obviously, you didn't have a knee injury, but um Yeah. Yeah. So Fuego was different uh in that uh Via Rica was cold climbing up and Fuego was definitely the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was just wet and sticky. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think I've ever sweated so much in my life. Mm. Yeah, 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 definitely drinking a lot of water because it's all coming right back out. <laughs> um, but also, like, I feel like you're also climbing through, like, really thick brush at the bottom. Um, there were places where we had to use machetes to get through some of the vegetation. Mm-hmm. Towards the top, it's all really loose, unconsolidated ash deposits. And so there's a lot of, like, unstable slopes that you're sort of hands and sort of knees crawling up certain parts that's it's a scramble through loose sand and sometimes it's sharp sharp loose sand i might add yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah that's definitely type two fun but you're right the views from up there are are phenomenal and to see to be so close i mean brian you know because you've been to to stromboli but to be so close to an erupting volcano is always really impressive yeah Speaking speaking of that sand and the 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 loose material, that makes uh, flying a drone uh, near volcanoes a, an int- it causes some interesting problems. So the rotors on those drones are open, mm. so all of the electronics uh, are exposed to the elements. So if you land a drone on the ground uh, in that sand and ash, that's it's basically just ash. It's just glass particles that are very sharp. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility to kick up some of it into the rotor, and that causes it to stick and fail. So, in order to combat that, we actually don't uh, take the drone off from the ground or land it on the ground. Uh, we we take it off from from the palm of our hand held above our heads and land it in the same fashion. So we just snatch the drone out of the air, which is. Very, makes for very impressive pictures yeah <laughs> <laughs> pictures and also if you've ever tried to like steer a drone and also catch it at the same time it takes some, some definite like hand eye coordination yeah <laughs> yeah it's uh it, it's definitely a skill <laughs> it takes some practice yeah you you're awesome at it though um great so type type two fun what was your type one fun then um Let's see. I mean, besides working with me, right? Obviously, <laughs> yeah. So, so, type one fun in the field is flying the drones. Type one fun every time. Yeah. Every time I 
that drone is in the air. I'm having type one fun. Yeah. It is, it is a great time. Um, as far as uh, type one and fun in the field with the uh, people, uh, it's always the drive to and from our field site. <laughs> I'm actually surprised you say that, but that's funny. Yeah, it's a barrel of laughs, <laughs> no matter what we're doing. It is. Uh, yeah, it's just hanging out with uh, smart people making smart jokes. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, um, I honestly feel like that's our entire field field experience, not just the, in, on the drive. But the thing that I love about Jerry um, and the thing that I love about the, the people that we work with is that I, I don't think we've ever had, I mean, we've had stressful moments out in the field, but nothing that people were like mad or upset about, like people just laughed through it and we just make jokes and we're all sarcastic with each other. And yeah, so I think that really makes the field experience because um, you're yeah. out there doing some tough stuff like climbing up really unstable slopes or you know some it's not always the funnest thing carrying a a you know lead acid car battery (laughs) so Uh you know like it's nice to have people that keep it lighthearted and that you can sort of um I don't know rely on and Mm -hmm. yeah so oh another another fun experience um was uh getting um getting roped up and uh, attaching the camera to that dead tree on the uh, side of the uh, barranca. Like that was, that was definitely a fun experience for me. <laughs> like got all the safety harnesses on, got my helmet on, yeah, going out and strapping a camera to a, to a tree to, to collect data. Yeah. That was, that was definitely, that was type one fun for me. That was maybe type two. That was type one fun. I was like, you this climbed awesome. up a tree. It was uh, right on the loose and precipitous edge of the barranca. I didn't climb up the tree, but I did uh, get all the way out on this like sheer cliff ledge. Like I could look down and there was nothing under there for what, like 20 meters, 30 meters, something like that. Yeah. It's a very deep channel. Yeah. <laughs> and the edge is, is, is sharp because it's all unconsolidated material that sloughs off on the regular, which that's why we had the ropes on. But yeah, like that was, that was a lot of fun for me <laughs> like getting out there and doing, doing the, the stuff with the little bit of spicy stuff, the danger involved. <laughs> yeah. I have a, I have a really great action shot of you doing that, Jerry, maybe we'll add it to our website so people can see just exactly what it looks like for you to do that. Because um, I'm sitting there having a cardiac arrest while Jerry's not doing this. And I'm just like, please like, just don't like fall. Like, <laughs> but Jerry's the type of person that will volunteer for stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, bless you, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Every time. Like, I know that we're going to do everything that we can to make it as safe as possible. And that's why I have such a level of comfort, like making these um, quote unquote risks, because yeah. I, I know that we're, we're doing everything in our power to, uh, to mitigate the danger. And in my, in my previous jobs, like there was, there was times that I didn't have that mitigation and I did it anyway, because it, it was part of the job and it was, what I needed to do at the time. So like, this is, this is cake yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. for it. 
It yeah. turns out you end up just getting hurt jumping over a river. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> jumping over a small stream. Yeah, not even a river. Too much stream. danger sauce for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to wrap you in some bubble wrappers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Jerry, and it helps um, having Armando Panito with us, who we interviewed in a, a previous episode, but um, he's just obviously one of the safest people out there, and he's got all the equipment for us, so mm-hmm. I yeah, wasn't cured. I wasn't actually having a cardiac arrest, <laughs> it was just like, it's a little unnerving to watch him do it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like watching a flying trapeze, even though there's a net, like, it's still it's still a thrill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially towards the end of the season, because I felt like the very last time that we went down in September and you had to take the camera off of the tree. Mm-hmm. It was a yeah, bit there of was a lot bit. less ledge at that. Yeah, point. <laughs> it was a lot less. Um, but you did amazing. Um, so Jerry, I'm gonna um sort of switch gears here a little bit. And um, we like to just have, you know, a little bit of fun with our guests. So I'm gonna ask you a really serious question right now. serious question how much do you know about the andromeda galaxy uh, i know a little bit okay i know of its existence and some random facts <laughs> of course um so my my first question to you is like how would you solve a scientific problem if you were from the andromeda galaxy a scientific problem if i was from the andromeda galaxy mm-hmm. i would use math like like i don't i don't think uh math is um a strictly human construct i think it exists out and uh in the universe it might not be base 10 like depending on how many fingers i have in in this other in this other it might be base 12 or or base 14 which is fun to think about well, if you're if you're a nerd. <laughs> and maybe maybe you only have one finger. Yeah, yeah, or base or base eight. Yeah. If I'm like looking like Bart Simpson, you know, like Definitely. there's a, there's a poss- there's endless possibilities of how the math would uh, present itself. But realistically, uh, all the equations still work if it's in a different uh, if it's a different root base. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I th- it would have to be through mathematical equations because that's how science works. Like the the basis of science is through an understanding of mathematics. It's a hard stop. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's very true. Good point. Is there like a specific problem that you could think of, like hypothetically anything? If you could solve any problem with math, what would it be? Mm, a math problem from the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, gravitational acceleration is always a good one. Yep. <laughs> How fast things fall. <laughs> yeah. So if I was if I was a pioneer in uh, scientific learning and some planet on Andromeda, I'd probably do the uh, um, leaving Tower of Pisa uh, cannonball experiment. Mm-hmm. develop develop some sort of equation for for gravity that way in my base 12 or base 8 mathematical <laughs> system nice yeah. yeah that's a really great answer um 
So when we figure out how to get there, uh-huh. uh, I'm going to put in your name as a cool. potential, you know, volunteer to be sent yeah. to the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. And the longer we wait, the closer it gets. So that's true. I mean, you know, in like a million or so years, you know, they might have that figured out. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just just spin me back up and we'll go. Let's get it. <laughs> uh, cool. So, um, okay, we're going to get a little bit back into your research now. Cool. And we do this segment where we kind of challenge you to describe your research to three different types of people um, or groups of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've had some experience with this because you've presented at um, a couple of conferences already. And um yeah, you've done a lot of great posters, so I think you're going to nail this part. So <laughs> um, so the first group of people that we ask you to describe your research to is like an elementary class, like a fourth or fifth grade class. So think like eight to 10 year olds. How would you describe your research to them? Fifth grader. Okay, eight to 10 year olds are pretty smart. Um, <laughs> let's see. Like you've, you've seen... Uh, are you smarter than a fifth grader? Yep. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Uh, I don't know. So, so I won't. I won't. I won't have to. I won't have to play it down very hard. So, what I do is I take drones and I go out and I take a lot of pictures from pretty high up, and the, all those pictures have a lot of overlap. So there's there. It's basically the same picture, but just a little bit different each time. Mm-hmm. And I take the, those pictures in a big in a big area, and then I take those pictures back to the lab, and I put them into a software, into a computer that stitches all those pictures together, and it uses some some pretty complex math to make a three D model out of it, like like, um, like Minecraft. That's yeah, like Minecraft. <laughs> Only it's the real world. And it's all from pictures that I took. And then I use that to see how things change over time. Sweet. Love how you add in Minecraft there. I think it's so relevant to the elementary kids. <laughs> they love they love their Minecraft. They love their Minecraft. Um, okay. So the next group of people would be um, maybe someone who's maybe uh, in high school or an undergraduate, like maybe someone who's in your, your current uh, lab or something. Um, who knows a little bit about your research, but doesn't really have like your area of expertise. So how would you explain what you do to them? Undergrad. Okay. So, so what I do is I go out into the field on the flanks of this constantly erupting volcano with a lot of loose material and, and detritus and, I'm studying. I'm studying lahars, which are volcanic mud flows down through channels, right? And these channels get eroded. So what I do is I take a drone out, and I do uh, a survey over about a half kilometer wide to a kilometer long, uh, with overlapping pictures for structure for motion. And then I take those back to the lab, and I stitch all those pictures together uh, in uh, AgiSoft, and it creates a, a digital elevation model and an ortho mosaic through some pretty complex math. And then I subtract those digital, ele- digital elevation models from each other to find 
how things have changed over time. And I'm doing that for five different stations over five months. Nice. That was great. Yeah. You're really, you're really articulate with your expl explanation. <laughs> I've, I've had to explain this about four times to, uh, to my dad. So <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So the last group is, and you've, you've had some experience with this. Um, you're presenting at a big conference and you need to tell a professional um, what your research is about. So how would you explain it to someone who is a professional? Expert. Okay, so professional. So I'm using drone photogrammetry on a barranca in uh, Guatemala on the flanks of Fuego Volcano to see how the barranca changes over time and uh, using digital elevation models collected through uh, drone data uh, for DEM differencing to see to see the the geomorph geomorphological changes over time. Nice, yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, you're you're really great at this. Um, the really fun thing I was sitting here as you were explaining that and thinking about it is. Um, Jerry is is really like a subset of my project and he's doing all this amazing drone work and he he's on his own project to figure out the DEM differencing in the drainages. And he's made these really beautiful profiles from the five months that we've been working down there that show some really dramatic erosion, um, at least for one of the sections. We don't know what's happening yet in the other sections because he's still processing that data. Slowly <laughs> yeah. um, but surely. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, but his work is so integral to the things that I'm studying because um, in terms of the seismic and infrasound signals, um, the geometry of the channel really changes the energetics of these flows. And, um, and so that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the signal flow behaviors and some of those energetics, like the energy contained within those flows and how it changes, um, not only as it, you know, you see the front of the pulses and then it travels back until the tail ends, but also, as it travels from upstream to downstream, how those energetics change. And a lot of that is um, dictated by these, these geometric changes, these geomorphology changes in the drainages. So what Jerry's doing is actually very, very important for the work that I'm also doing. And so we're very fortunate to have him um, working on it, doing all yeah, the there's, there's There's at least one section that has cut laterally uh, like eight meters and then cut uh, vertically another another seven. So that's that is a lot of material in that in that one area that's been eroded just over one season. Mm -hmm. the, the energetic energetics associated with Lahars is incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're definitely very destructive, very powerful um, entities. So quick um, question oh, yeah. Um, yeah. about how many pictures do you take per um, drone deployment? Um, it's anywhere from 150 to like 370, depending on, depending on which area it is. Because mm -hmm. each, uh, um, each study area, when I set up the, uh, when I set up the uh, flight plan is a slightly different 
geometry. So depending on what I need to cover and the altitude, it's a little bit different for each one of them, but that's about the range. So 150 to, to 370 pictures. Yeah. Do you know about how much data that takes up storage wise? That's 50, 58 gigs, I think on average. And just, just for the raw data. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the raw pictures. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. That's great, Jerry. Um, We're so grateful for you and the fact that you're able to do this for, um, for yourself, it's going to be the most amazing master's project um, besides Brian's obviously. Right. Obviously. Um, uh, but also the fact that you're just able to help us out with that. Cause I think Jeff and I bit off more than we could chew and we're like, <laughs> and luckily Jerry was there to sort of take on, take yeah, on what we're going to take on. Yeah. Swoop in. <laughs> yeah. Swoop in and job jump. Like I cannot, I am incapable of keeping my fingers out of things. <laughs> like, like if there's, if there's a project to work on, I'm going to put my fingers in it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help it <laughs> yeah that's a that's a good thing for the science fields i think mm-hmm. uh, maybe not for other things but yeah yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> when i'm in the lab i'm always like every every time there's something going on in the lab and like looking over people's shoulders like hey what you what you got going on there is there anything that i could do <laughs> i can help you solve that problem <laughs> You're the reason why museums have the do not touch signs. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. Because it, yeah, just fiddling with everything. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, well, we're going to sort of wrap up your, your interview um, with a couple more serious questions because, you know, we like to do that. I'm ready. Serious question. Your first serious question is, uh, what would happen if you tried to hit a baseball pitched at 90% the speed of light? What do you think would happen? Okay. So 90% the speed of light. So are we starting from the pitch (laughs) or or halfway through? Because Uh, the pitch is important. No, the pitch. Definitely starting from the pitch. Okay. So starting from the pitch, the windup is going to be devastating. If it's anywhere near a planet, the, the windup for the pitch is going to be catastrophic. Because <laughs> the amount of energy that it would take to propel a baseball at 90% the speed of light is insane. Like that is a wild amount of energy. So the air around the baseball due to friction would turn into a plasma of an extremely heated plasma and that would burn everything for miles <laughs> so that and that's that's before it leaves the pitcher's hand right. like everything is suddenly on fire <laughs> and, and like like the surface of the sun kind of fire not like not like campfire but like really 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 hot <laughs> so so everything everything's on fire uh, and then as the, the baseball is going to have to be some sort of, uh, unburnable substance. So it's not a regular baseball. It's like, a like some crazy indestructible baseball. So as it leaves the pitcher's hand, everything's on fire. And then 
basically the pitcher's going to explode like right after that because it's 90% the speed of light. <laughs> like, like the baseball is going to crush through this, the intervening atmosphere at a ridiculous speed causing uh, untold damage to everything around us <laughs> and, then, and then vaporize the pitcher. So, or uh, yeah, the pitcher and the batter. Like every, no. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say yeah. the pitcher. We'll say the pitcher is a pitching machine. So okay. no pitchers get hurt in this simulation. Yeah, no, <laughs> no pitchers were injured in this simulation. As long as as long as the planet's also abandoned, you're probably gonna be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, so that question actually comes from this book called What If by mm-hmm. Rand Monroe. And I've uh, read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, it's a great book. I'm not like trying to specifically promote anything on this this podcast, but if you haven't read that book, I think all three of us have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should definitely, definitely read it. That's a good one. It's basically this guy has this blog and and he has uh, lots of people like write in and ask him all these scientific sort of questions. Um, a lot of them are so ridiculous. And so he tries through physics and math to sort of figure out the answers to them. And I think his answer, right, was that basically the entire planet would just like implode on itself because yeah it would crack the planet yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that amount of energy uh released all at once even on that small yeah yeah it would just crack the planet yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah great job um okay one more question um so jerry um if there is a finite amount of matter in the universe mm-hmm. um how does the Olive Garden offer unlimited salad and breadsticks. Mm. That's that's a good question. <laughs> I have to assume that they're getting it from an alternate dimension. Like there's some there's some other parallel universe that is just breadsticks. So they're actually adding to the matter in our universe through this alternate universe breadstick machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the only, that's really the only explanation. Well, mm-hmm. they could be converting the matter already here to breadsticks. No, totally implausible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. It's gotta be, it's gotta be an alternate universe <laughs> that's, that's just made up of breadsticks. That's true. But then how do you have conservation of energy when you're adding? Well, our conservation of well, yeah. How do you yeah, we're, we're, conservation if you're adding more into the universe? Well, that it's because it's from another universe. Like you don't have to worry about it. Like <laughs> just don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's like <laughs> you don't have to worry about it because you're getting it from outside the system. You're adding to the system. So conservation of uh, mass and energy are um, conserved. Conserved in our system just yeah now. in our system because we're, we're like getting we're like getting it from the outside right like it's fine okay <laughs> i'll go with that answer yeah. um and jerry uh just lastly because you're so awesome at coming up with random facts um mm. sort of going to put you on the spot is there a random fact that you have for our listeners today that you just want to shout out <sighs> okay Oof. I mean, I definitely have one that you've told me before, but mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, whew, what do I want the world to know? <laughs> <sighs> it's 
So the, well, we'll go, with, we'll go with the squirrels. Yeah. Love the squirrels. It. So the terminal velocity of a squirrel is such that it can fall indefinitely and survive when it hits the ground. That's why squirrels are fearler, fearless when they're jumping from tree to tree, because if they fall, eh, it doesn't really matter. Because when they hit the ground, they're fine. So <laughs> the only thing that could really kill a squirrel from falling is if it fell from a great enough height that it starved to death. <laughs> All <laughs> down. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I know yeah, cats, that... cats are borderline, mm-hmm. which is why they have to twist and, and land correctly. Yeah. But there have been reports of cats jumping out of 30-story windows and surviving the fall. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's actually a middle zone for cats. Uh, I think it's between two and 10 stories where it's actually more dangerous than higher than that for them. Like it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of physics thing. Hmm. Yeah. The, the terminal velocity of squirrels is such that they, they do not have to fear falling. That's awesome. I know that's the case for ants and and insects as well, but that's because their mass is so, so tiny. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically like it, it scales all the way up to squirrels mm. <laughs> and cats to a certain degree. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. By the way, this is the kind of information I get when we're traveling in the car in the field. Uh-huh. Gary will just turn to me and tell me random facts like this. Yeah. Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's pretty great. Well, Jerry, this has been an amazing interview. I'm so glad we got to get you on the podcast and you've just, you're an amazing person. So keep, keep it up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been an honor. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Before we go, is there anyone you want to give a shout out to? Uh, Yes. Uh, My committee, uh, Jeff Johnson, uh, Megan Cattell and Jen Pierce. Um, Definitely, definitely wouldn't be able to do this without them for several obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, our lab group, the InfraBSU lab group, um, most of you included, all of you included. Um, let's see, my uh, my brother who convinced me to go to college in the first place. Mm. Definitely Ben Mock, the the guy who started this all this malarkey. <laughs> Yeah, so we can blame him. When... Yeah, you can blame him. Yep. Yeah, he is definitely at fault. <laughs> All this mocklarky. <laughs> mocklarky. Yes. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, we hope to hear more from you in the future. Hear about all the awesome stuff that you're going to continue to do. Yeah. Yeah. Once once I get closer to some real results, I'll come back on and, and share. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. Cool, Jerry. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Yep. See you later. Bye. Well, that was an epic conversation. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Tune in next time for another Epic Earth podcast. It makes data management a uh, um, really important part of my job. <laughs> yeah. Totally.